Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in data and analytics, in AI and big data, and in learning more about the insurance industry, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Employers and has worked for some of the world's leading insurance companies. But before I introduce you to Tom Warden, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Tom Warden, Senior Vice President and Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Employers, which has been providing American small businesses with cost-effective workers' compensation insurance for over a 100 years. Prior to joining Employers in 2017, Tom had worked at two other insurance giants, the American International Group, also known as AIG, where he headed up global consumer data integration, and at Allstate Insurance, where he spent 25 years and, among many other things, created the first data mining team, where early forms of machine learning and artificial intelligence were used to mine extremely large data sets. Tom, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you getting more caffeinated there in Reno, <laughs> Nevada, and are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. I've got a cup, of, cup of, half a cup in front of me and one down, so I'm good. <laughs> nice. All right. So I was thinking before we get into what you're doing right now as the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Employers, it might be helpful to our listeners to get a better sense as to exactly what employers does. Do you work primarily or exclusively with small American businesses, or do your services expand to other types of businesses as well? well we focus on selling workers' compensation insurance to, to small businesses. We do have some larger businesses in our portfolio, but it's, it's mostly small businesses. When I say small, I mean very small. I mean, we, we insure a lot of mom and pop retail shops and restaurants and, and things like that. So we're, we're focused on relatively, what we consider low hazard risks. We don't insure mining companies and roofers and construction companies, things like that. So we have this sort of market niche we've established. We've done very well. We're a monoline company, which means we only sell one line of insurance and we sell it through independent agents. And we're looking to modernize our business practices with data and then leverage that uh, those competitive advantages to, to continue to grow our market across the country. 
Nice. And by workers' comp, again, for those who may not be familiar with it. Sure. It's insurance for employees of businesses if they get hurt on the job. And workers' comp- compensation insurance it pays for the medical care to get them better. Even if someone is out driving as a part of their job and they get in a car accident, uh, their injuries uh, are on our policy, not necessarily the commercial auto policy. Fixing a car would be on the commercial auto policy, but even the injuries suffered in a car accident if you're at work or doing work, is on our policy. So most of our injuries are minor, broken arm, broken leg cuts and things like that. But we do have some very severe injuries that we have. We pay the claims on as well. Yeah, no doubt. So before we dive into your current job, the industry that you're in, and by that I mean, I should say the sector, the data and analytics side of the work that employers offers, is something that has evolved quite a bit over the years. And certainly from the time you graduated from college back in the early 80s, as computers have evolved, you and I were chatting about this just a couple of minutes ago, the industry has evolved kind of by leaps and bounds. How old is the industry? Is this data and analytics field? Well, you know, it's funny. The concept of artificial intelligence goes back to the early 60s or late 50s, I believe. So it's evolved since then as the computing power and the availability of data has evolved. But as you mentioned in your intro, I mean, I was, colleague and I were asked by our CEO at Allstate to start a data mining team back in, geez, 1980 or 1990, basically. And the industry has gone from predictive analytics to data mining to big data. Now it's data science. Now it's AI. It's been evolving over the last, you know, 40, 50 years, just as computers have become more powerful, basically, and people have built more complex algorithms to take advantage of that computing power. How would you describe what the field looks like today? Uh, I think it's one that has many, many opportunities in it. I think it's the evolution of computing power and the algorithms that can take advantage of that power that have opened up all sorts of new opportunities to apply data science to to really any type of problem. I think if anyone's been reading a lot about this industry and what's been going on, it's been kind of hard to miss some of the articles around artificial intelligence and how far can it go and will it control our lives and will robots take over? You know, we're moving toward a uh, at a pace of evolution where those questions are, are serious questions to ask. But at the same time, if you look at the sort of positive aspects of, of the evolution, it's very fascinating. There's always new algorithms, there are always new computing methods, there are always faster computers these days. And so there's a bit of an arms race amongst the companies, especially, that are using and leveraging a lot of this intelligence to keep up and keep the competitive advantages that they've created to hang on to them. I've read that this field, that the expertise that you have in data and analytics is something that is one of the hottest commodities to have that employers in all different industries want people like you. Yeah, it's a very hot fuel for for hiring and there are a lot of jobs being created. I think where the competitive advantage gets created is on the application of what teams like mine develop. I think I'm very proud of what my company has been doing in the sense that we pay as much attention to developing the intelligence and all the whiz-bang stuff as we do to applying it and making sure that business practices we're trying to improve actually do improve. One of the more interesting things about my career is that, you know, I'm a chief data and analytics officer. That's why I lead a team of people that are doing very complex, very advanced data science and things like that. 
but I'm not a technical person. I mean, I've been managing technical teams for a long time, and I've learned enough about math and stats and all the different, even actuarial science. I know enough to ask the right questions of people when they bring things and present things. But I'm not at all a technician. I think people assume that, oh, I must have a quantitative background. Well, it's, it's not the case. I mean, I went to probably one of the more qualitative business schools in the, in the country. And yet here I am leading uh, teams of PhDs and math majors and things like that. It's, it's just an interesting part of my career development. That you develop the qualifications or the skills to do a job over time. The older you get, the longer you're in business, the less what you did in school matters anymore. It's really about what you've learned all along the way. And is that because you're more of a big picture guy and seeing the trends and cross-cutting themes and are able to kind of take the data and actually, to one of your points, use it to help the companies that you're working for actually implement what the research and the data is showing? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've always been an idea-oriented person, even when I was younger. I think that got those skills got developed when I was at Harvard because they are very strategic-oriented. And they, they're training people, at least they used to say they're training people to run companies, not work, you know, sort of in the middle of companies. And, you know, that big picture perspective, it sounds a little arrogant that they say that, but I mean, that big picture perspective is very useful and very valuable to have as you're evolving a function or evolving a company. And yeah, that's been sort of my added value. I think about always has been looking forward and saying, okay, gee, we're five years from now, this is going to be possible. What do we need to do to prepare ourselves to leverage that technology or that innovation when the time comes? Okay. Well, I want to get into the application of data science, but first... What does the chief data and analytics officer at employers do? Your resume describes this role as leading the development of transformative capabilities in data management, business analytics, and data science in order to help employers become a data-driven company. What does that mean? Well, primarily it means developing what we call data products that to meet a critical business need. And a data product can be a predictive model. It can be some other form of artificial intelligence that predicts what should be done or directs the workflow of a claim or how it's handled, things like that. A data product can also be an interactive dashboard where we're delivering real-time data to frontline people to take action. When I started here a few years ago, our ability to do that was very limited. And over the last year, we've developed a lot of these data products that have really improved the ability of frontline people to make, take the right action at the right time. And so developing anything along that spectrum is really the primary part of my job. The, the things that support that are data governance and data management. The IT group at our company really has developed our data environment with my help and the help of some outside folks to make data more accessible, more available, and more accurate so that we can build these data products. So helping to manage and develop that environment is another key aspect of my job. I'd say the third part is really data governance and model governance. For businesses to have usable data, they have to have well-governed data. By that, I mean they can't have data that represents the same thing in three different places. They might not have the same value if there's data in three places that is supposed to represent the same thing or definitions of data or metrics that vary across the business. So there's a lot of time and energy that we've spent getting to a common ground of one version of the truth, so to speak, is where we're headed is the, is the phrase that gets used a lot. So a lot of time and energy gets spent on that as well. And I'd say the, 
The final part of my job is really sort of applied visioning. <laughs> this is the fun part of the job where you're thinking, okay. what can we do with all this intelligence? What can we do with all this data? Where should we go next? I think that's the aspect of my job I enjoy the most is trying to figure out, okay, beyond what we're working on today, what are we going to work on next? And how do we connect that to the business to create even more advantage for us? Got it. So let's dig into one or more of those data products that your team has created. Can you give us an example of something? Well, one would be a model, predictive model that we use at the beginning of the claims process. So when a claim gets originated, we get a limited amount of information about the injury and the party and what took place. And over the first, say, you know, 50 or 60 days of the claim being active, if they claim, we get more and more information from either the injured party, from the doctors that are seeing, or potentially even an attorney that's gotten involved or whatever. So as we get more information about the claim itself, we try to identify the, not just the severity of the claim, you know, could this become a claim that we might pay more than a million dollars over the course of it being open, or is this a very straightforward claim? We try to differentiate as early as we can, you know, the type of claim that we think this will turn into so we can have the right people handling it from the get-go. Obviously, we would want our much more experienced claims adjusters working on the complex claims because they have more knowledge, more history, more insights about you know, how to effectively manage that claim as best as possible than, say, a more junior person. So triaging those claims is what we really call it. There's a model that predicts where that claim will wind up. That's an example of a data product that we've developed. We use not just the data that's in the actual claim file, we actually also mine the notes that the claim adjuster puts in, which are fairly cryptic, and they look for signals from all kinds of different sources to understand how that claim is likely to, to develop. So listening to you, and granted, I'm somebody who has zero background in data analytics, you mentioned predictive modeling. So is that person back at headquarters inputting certain qualitative data into a computer program that then is run to say the chances are better than not that this claim is fraudulent or that this claim is the real deal or that it's going to end up paying out a million dollars over the course of its life. Just if you could maybe unpack that a little bit more. Sure. The claim adjuster, the person responsible for handling the claim through its life cycle is really entering all the data into our claim system. And then what we do on the back end is aggregate as much of that data about the thousands and thousands of claims over as long a period of time as we can. We go back 10 years with our history on claims to build this model. So we aggregate all of that information in the computer. So there's no real intermediary party evaluating what the claim adjuster is doing. We aggregate that information from thousands of claims over time and let the algorithms sort out all the different inputs and signals that we get from the various things that the claim adjusters entered. And for the instance, the claim notes, we use natural language processing algorithms to mine. It's text mining is what we used to call it, to look for signals through all the cryptic entry and sentences and partial sentences and everything that they've put in the notes that describe some of the background of the claim that doesn't really show up in the sort of stuff that's entered into the claim form, so to speak. Okay. So is that data more useful to help you sort of in a bigger picture planning sense than it is with that one specific case? It's both. I mean, it, we do use that information to help us understand how our reserves change over time based on the types of claims we have. But it helps us manage each individual claim because data continually comes in 
on a claim as, as it evolves. For instance, you might have somebody who slipped and fell at McDonald's behind the counter and hurt their wrist. So they're, they're, we're treating their wrist injury. And that's a fairly standard thing. And we have a pretty good understanding, depending on the severity of the sprain, how long it'll take to get that person back to work, etc. But if all of a sudden we get a bill or a notice from the doctor that says, well, gee, we're, we've scheduled an MRI for this person on their head, that changes things completely because you think now, oh, gee, what happened? Are they, we're treating their wrist. Is there now a head injury involved? This could happen two, three months into the claim. If the person's complaining of headaches and things like that, they might remember, oh, yeah, I hit my head on the floor when I fell. So things change over time of the claim as it, as it develops. We continually mine that information as new information comes in to better understand what might happen next. Okay. How does data help an insurance company like employers stay profitable? It's really, I think, where the competitive advantages are being created by most companies today. Marketing has been a, a focus for, especially the personal lines companies, to get their name known and brand out there. But really, where the opportunities to improve margins and, and grow more profitably are in understanding the data behind the loss costs and understanding how to price risk more accurately, to understand how to more effectively handle claims so that there's fewer say, human touches on a claim so that the machine or the automated processes can pay bills more automatically without the claim adjuster having to look at something and say, well, yes, we should pay this bill. That takes time. And our processes, when I first joined employers, our, our, were very manual and, and we're moving away from that in the sense that we don't want a, a claim adjuster or an underwriter looking at a very standard decision. We want their expertise applied to more complex decisions. So the more you can automate the simple decisions, the quicker the business can be processed, the more cost-effective they can be processed, and, and that creates margin improvement. Examples like that are where I think insurance companies are differentiating themselves these days. It's less apparent to the consumer, but the stock analysts certainly appreciate it. We're asking a lot of questions about it. Absolutely, because we should say that Employers is a publicly traded company. So how large is the team, is the data and analytics team that you sit at the top of? So we have a team of 16 people, including myself. Employers has about 750 employees, so we're a small fraction of, of the overall employee base. The team is split up between a handful of people that build predictive models, and many of them, they have mostly have actuarial backgrounds as well in terms of they've been taking their actuarial exams, and they have math and statistics backgrounds. I have a team of data scientists who do similar work, but they're less from an insurance background and their experiences outside of the insurance industry, but they work on you know, large data problems that use a lot of predictive modeling and they're using more experimental methods like machine learning and deep learning and things like that. And that's where we do natural language processing, et cetera, trying to leverage new algorithms, new technologies that traditionally haven't been used in our industry. And then I have a team of what I call analytics catalysts. They're the folks that work with our business, with more of our frontline people to deliver these interactive data products, dashboards that are forward-looking or at least real-time in the sense of helping them make decisions today rather than reports that are backward-looking and really have old information in them. I call them catalysts because their job is really to you know, be that spark to get the business thinking more intuitively and more aggressively about how they can use data and then leverage their business insights to say, well, this is what we'd like to do. Uh, if we could, we, we'd like to use data for this or for that. And then the catalyst job is really to develop the data product that satisfies that need. So a sense of 
you know, catalyst in chemistry is something that speeds up a reaction. That's really kind of how I position their job is go out into the business and understand what problems they're having and let's figure out a way to solve those problems faster with better data. Cool. So where are your analytic catalysts spending their time these days? They spend about half their time interacting with their business partners where, like I said, I mean, I, I, I try to assign them to specific areas of the business so that they learn more about the specific problems that part of the company's having or needs to address. And then they spend more about half their time developing those data products that help solve those problems. And in developing a data product, which is what's considered a dashboard in this case, about 80% of the work to do that is really about wrangling the data together to solve the problem. Uh, one of the things we've been able to do lately that we couldn't do before uh, we started this effort was aggregate or integrate data from different sources. If you're looking at solving an underwriting problem or a sales problem, it might be helpful to know the claims history of the types of policies that that agent sells or this region tends to, uh, we sell in this specific region. So we're trying to, you know, provide a sort of a holistic view of the profitability of a policy to folks in sales, to folks in claims, to folks in underwriting, so that they're not just looking at their silo of information. So that integration of data across various domains is very important. And they, the catalysts spend a good bit of their time doing that. Okay. And by a dashboard, could you give just a very quick sure. description of what you mean? A dashboard is, in essence, an interactive report. Uh, traditionally, that we, de- we deliver, we used to deliver static, you know, reports, pieces of paper that have summarized numbers on them to, to business leaders. And they get a sort of rear view, rear view, a mirror view of what's been going on in the business. Sometimes that data can be a month or two old. And if they have questions about it, they might take another month or so to get the right information to understand what's going on behind the aggregate numbers. What dashboards do is deliver that summary information, but then allow the user to drill into the data behind the summary numbers in real time. So rather than somebody going to their analyst and saying, hey, what's going to this number changed and this trend is changing over here, what's behind that? Uh, rather than the analyst having them go get the data, analyze the data, come back with an answer, which can take a while, the business user can drill into that dashboard by clicking through to see what the detailed data is. And a lot of this is done in a visual format as well. So tools like Tableau and Microsoft's Power BI are very popular these days to do this in a sense that you can create a visual depiction of what's changing in the data, how the data is being, uh, how you want to look at the data. You can personalize it to what types of analysis you as the user tend to do. And so it speeds up the, the cycle of really getting to it, be able to make a decision based on data very from weeks or months to hours and days or even less because the data is right there in front of you and you can drill into the detail and then visualize it in many different ways. It's really been a very sort of revolutionary concept in, in business analytics. Absolutely. So take us into a typical day on the job for you, Tom. If we were a fly on the wall, what would we be seeing and hearing you do? Yeah, I've got a team of 17, so it's not a huge team, but I do spend a lot of time interacting on a one-to-one basis with at least the folks that report to me. I meet with everyone weekly. We have group meetings every other week, so our whole team gets together and discusses things. I'm in meetings with my peers about business problems they're having or when they want my perspective on something. Some of those are impromptu. Some of those are regularly scheduled. So I tend to be a fairly unstructured person. So I try to structure my days 
<laughs> I don't forget about having them checking in with this person or that person. So I really manage my calendar in, the, in that sense to make sure that I'm having the right amount of face time with the right people on a weekly basis. But beyond that, I spend a good bit of time preparing material for my boss, for the CEO, for the board, things like that. That kind of comes and goes with different meetings that get scheduled. But that's a big part of my job is informing the rest of the organization what my team's doing, how we're accomplishing, how we're spending resources, things like that. I try to spend a good bit of my time kind of in the ideation space too. I mean, I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of a lot of thinking, but then try to translate that thinking into practical application of, okay, great, I've been reading about this concept. What's the application of that to our business? And what's the next thing we ought to be doing in the space of, say, deep learning or natural language processing, this or that, that would really take us to the next level? So I, I do view a big part of my job is kind of doing that visioning for the future and setting that direction. So I, I try to allocate a good bit of time for that every week. Wonderful. So what are you reading? Are these books in particular and any that you would recommend that our listeners read? Are you reading certain journals? If so, which ones? Certain websites? Yeah, it's all over the place, really. I mean, that's, I think that's the beauty of one of the beauties of the internet is that you can, as a person sitting at a desk in your office, you can have access to a, such a wide range of input. So I try to make sure that I'm not just reading from a few sources, but a wide range of sources. Anywhere from KDD Nuggets is a great online tool that they publish a weekly or bi-weekly sort of journal or a compendium of interesting articles that they've seen. O'Reilly Media is a great source of information. They publish a weekly things that are going on in AI. Most everything now that you get through your email has links in it, so you can click to, through to the article or the paper or the whatever. So I you know, try to subscribe to as many of those types of sources that are useful. I read the mainstream media too, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Economist, things like that, because a lot of times they have good insights about you know new things or, or people that are using new things. So yeah, it's really kind of all over the place. <laughs> I'm a little scattered in, in that sense of not having a fixed set of resources because there's always something new that pops up that's like, oh, gee, I want to go look at that and pursue that and understand that better. Absolutely. Well, as we were discussing, Data analytics is something that is affecting just about every industry out there. So the research and the learning must be coming from every single direction you can imagine. Yeah, it used to be, I think, that academia was really the focus of a lot of evolution and new learning because people would, you know, in pursuit of their PhD or if you're a professor, you know, you're always expected to be publishing articles and journals and things like that. And that's still a good source of input. The world has become much more democratized, I think, when it comes to idea development. We're not reliant on those institutions as much as we used to. So if somebody, you know, that's a great data scientist, but isn't a professor somewhere, has a, has a great idea, they can publish a paper even on LinkedIn or someplace like that. And it's really about how viral uh, some of those things get by people clicking them and referring others to them and all that. So a lot of attention can be drawn to sources of insight that were hard to really find before. I think that's really helped speed up the of improvement in our industry is that information travels at such a fast rate. And, and it's not, you know, the sanctioning of what's good and what's not is really reliant anymore on institutions. It's really reliant on the community of, of consumers to say, yeah, that's really smart or yeah, that's not such a great idea. So not to put you on the spot too much, Tom, but if you were looking down the road five years from now, for our young listeners, what do you think 
the skills are, the technical skills that they really need to be developing now in order to meet that new development? I think, uh, I mean, one skill set is really the ability to, to write code. I mean, that's, that's a pretty broad statement, but you know, being comfortable working with data and writing algorithms or just writing computer code is a critical, I think, uh, a skill set to have. Not necessarily because that's what you're going to be doing all of your life, um, but it demonstrates your ability to conceptualize and solve problems through, through algorithms, through writing, you know, interpreting a, a problem with data into some kind of computer code. I think that's a very valuable skill set to develop, even if you're not in a technical field. I think uh, thinking that way is really uh, of critical skill set to have for the future. And then I think the other one is really sort of an old standard. It's just critical thinking, the ability to aggregate information uh, from different sources, be it qualitative or quantitative sources, and figure out how to you know, use that information to solve a problem or answer a question or whatever. Think through uh, the problem rather than just jump to a, jump to an answer that's the first apparent one you think is right. I think that ability to structure how you problem solve has always been a very valuable skill to have. And I see that uh, just increasing in its importance going forward as, as things become more data-oriented. So you've been in this industry pretty much for over 30 years. What would you say are the biggest ways that the insurance industry has changed over the last 30 years since you joined it? And what do you think are the absolute must-have skills for someone interested in breaking into this industry, in particular into the data and analytics side? What are the must-have math courses that you and your team are tapping into every day? your first question about how the industry has changed, you know, insurance is typically thought of as kind of stodgy and old-fashioned and slow to change. And, and we have been in this industry. But over the last, I'd say, five to, to 10 years, at least especially the last five, more and more companies are starting to realize the benefits from investing in data and analytics. And it's become more of a true differentiator in, in creating competitive advantage. And we're slow to get on the train. I mean, obviously, e-commerce companies and, and all of the online world has leveraged these techniques for, for years now. But the insurance industry is starting to really become more revolutionary in terms of actually mining, creating value from all of this investment that they've made. It's a, it's a good time to be to get, in, to get into it because I think a lot of great things and interesting things are going to happen over the next 10 years. Now, in terms of you know, specifics, around coursework and things like that. I don't really have too many specific courses or things that I could recommend, but I think what an employer like myself looks at is those courses and someone's ability to understand and apply what they've learned in an advanced math or advanced stats or an advanced programming course is really, from my perspective, it's more about, so this person passed this course, they're obviously smart. Can they translate what they learned into problem solving? I think that's really the key differentiator that I look for. It's not so much what coursework have they done, because a lot of what they'll learn and can learn is done on the job and done through online learning and Coursera and things like that. I mean, the the ability to, to learn new skills is very open these days and very easy to do. So I'm looking more for how does a person take what they've learned and talk about it in terms of its ability to, to help solve real-world problems. Okay. And what about the behaviors that you believe employers most value in their employees above and beyond the technical skills? 
I think it's the characteristics that contribute to good teamwork. We do, especially on my team, but mostly at employers in general, we tend to work in teams. And those teams can be people from different backgrounds, from different levels of expertise, different types of skills, etc. So the ability to communicate well, to be humble enough to listen to others and share their understanding where they're coming from before sort of chiming in with your own opinions and thoughts. Those are the types of things, the softer skills, I think are the most important to those who succeed in the roles that I have than, than not. I think we're not big enough to have sort of a handful of technical specialists that sit off in the corner and don't interact with anybody. We're a small team, so we have everyone's got to play different roles at different times. And the ability to express yourself, communicate your ideas, but then also kind of be a good team member in terms of being humble and it's all about the team, it's not about me. Those are the characteristics, I think, that are the most important to have. Wonderful. So let's flash back to when you were in college, Tom. You went to Ohio State University and you got your Bachelor of Science in Accounting. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? <laughs> well, I knew I didn't want to be an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh-oh. Well, and there's a reason behind that. I had started working for the Public Employees Retirement System of, of Ohio in their investment department as, a, as an intern after I graduated high school. And then I continued doing that during the summers when I was in college. So I really wanted to get into the investment management business. And... I figured that a great introduction to that is really understanding, you know, how companies report their earnings, how they how they're structured, how you know, accounting is a great understanding of the plumbing of business, basically, and and then especially as you get into investment analysis, uh, understanding how people are either abusing or properly using accounting principles is a key key differentiator in terms of being able to understand whether it's a company's a good investment or not. So that was really my focus on why accounting. I thought it was a great uh, grounding in the principles I would need to really understand investment management better. So how did you end up moving into the insurance industry? By chance. <laughs> and this is a great story, I think, for young people to, to understand is you can have a plan, you can have a vision, and that's great. You should. But you also have to be open to the fact that random things happen in life sometimes, and you, you might get uh, set on a different course, and you have to kind of embrace that. My wife at the time, we were living in Los Angeles, and she had been accepted to go to graduate school at Stanford up in Northern California. So I was faced with the prospect of finding a job in Northern California and didn't really have much of a network of people up there I knew or anything like that. So I was applying for jobs that I saw. And this is back in the dark ages when the Wall Street Journal still published employment ads. <laughs> and and I applied to a position that was didn't identify the company, I don't think. It just said major insurance company looking for investment and finance research associate. And so it turns out the company was Allstate. They had a research center based in Menlo Park up near San Francisco. It's still there. It's in sort of a different format now than it was back then. But they had a group of folks that did strategic investment research. And I applied for the job there and I got it. There's a funny story behind that, but probably we don't have time for that either. But, <laughs> you know, I thought my wife at the time thought, well, I'll be in school for five or six years and then maybe we'll move back to Southern California. So we didn't really look at it as a, as a career move. It was more of a, well, I got to get a job and this seems like an interesting job. I'll take it. And then things happened. Her academic career took longer and we had a child and I actually liked where I worked and started advancing. And next thing I know, I'm 30 years in the industry going like, gee, how'd that happen? <laughs> <laughs> right. You were at Allstate for 25 years. 
Yeah, it was a it was a great place to work. It was a really interesting environment that was unique at the time. You know, insurance companies these days have innovation centers. They've got all kinds of things that they're doing in the space now. But Allstate was a pioneer way back when, I think the late 60s, early 70s, establishing this research center that did all kinds of different work from investment research to human resource research. And, you know, we were really, a, our big differentiator was our ability to aggregate data from all the different systems that Allstate had and make sense of it so that we could, we and others in the company could create insights from it. That was a, a big competitive advantage for Allstate back in the day. Well, back in the day, and you left in 2012, to my knowledge, you were not called like a chief data officer when you left. I wasn't at Allstate. No, I was just the vice president of uh, the research center. So one of our activities there was the data work, but it wasn't when it was not exclusively that. So did you end up having to educate yourself or learn take additional courses while you were at Allstate or when you moved to AIG? Well, when I moved to AIG, I became the chief data officer for their life and retirement business. So I did read a lot about what, beyond what I was doing at Allstate, what what was encompassed in that job. I mean, it was really focused a lot on developing data governance. The life and retirement group at AIG, it sounds like a single entity. It was actually eight or nine separate companies that had been acquired over time. And there really wasn't much integration of their data across the companies because it really there hadn't really been much thought of why to do that. At the time that the data programs created at AIG, you know, there was a desire to try and mine more insight from information across the different businesses, build a better understanding of who our customer really is and you know how much exposure we have to certain customers and things like that. So a lot of the effort was about trying to integrate as much of the data as possible from the different companies, draw insights from one business and apply it to another. And within each business, try to make sure that data was appropriately managed and of high enough quality. So to, especially from an actuarial perspective, they were working with good data to make the large, you know, the significant decisions that they make around reserving and pricing and things like that. So a lot of time was spent on all those kinds of activities. Yeah, I did have a lot of learning to do about the intricacies of it. And most of it I did through reading books and articles and talking to people. Excellent. So I should also let our listeners know that you did get your MBA in finance and investments from Harvard, but this was right after you graduated from Ohio State and before you started at Allstate. I have taken far more of your time than I had said I would, and I apologize for that. No problem. But this is just fascinating. It really is. And, And I know that my gosh, you, there will be sighs of relief that I think will be heard by <laughs> listeners to hear, <laughs> to hear that you yourself haven't gotten quite that level of technical expertise, and yet you are the big boss. But I think it makes sense, too, because the fact that you are someone who has to take it and implement it. You need to be somebody who's more of a big picture guy. Well, and I, I tell that to a lot of audiences, that, uh, especially of, of younger data scientists, is that you're in the sexy field. I mean, the attention is you are the masters of the universe, so to speak, of the next of this generation in a way. So don't let that go to your head. I mean, uh, you know, you still you still have to take your algorithm or your model or whatever you've built and apply it to something to change an outcome. That's where value gets created. I mean, I had a fellow who was working for me when I first joined employers who 
Um, very, very smart guy and, and a nice guy. He was, he was a personal individual, but he was very, he was arrogant about his, his knowledge, his, how important his, the models he was, he worked on our claims model, the one I was talking about. And he got upset one day when uh, the Barry, our chief claims officer was talking to a broad audience about the model that had been built and how it made a difference. And, you know, he was trying to make everyone in the claims organization feel good about what they were doing. And then Chow came up to me after the meeting and said, you know, Barry never once mentioned the model. And I said, well, yeah, you're right, Chow. He didn't. He probably should have. But he was really, you know, offended. He's like, but the model is the key to the whole thing. I said, well, (laughs) I said, okay, it's a key to the whole thing. But if you build, if your model hadn't been used by the claims adjusters to change how they're doing their work, what what would be the value in developing it? He was so, he understood my point, I think, but he still was so caught up in how cool the model was that he couldn't really, he was you know, personally offended that it hadn't been called out as the, the key to creating the value. <laughs> I told him, I said, Chow, I said, you know, just take my advice. You gotta, you need to become a little more humble about these things if you really want to get ahead because he was very career oriented and he wanted my job basically. That's what he told me. You know, I said, I, 10 years from now, I'd like your job. I said, great. We help you get there. And I told him, I said, first thing you're going to have to do is learn to share the credit and not think about everything as you, 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 and your intelligence. It's, uh, that, that creates so many barriers between technical people and business people. Business people, I find, are very suspicious of the technical people because a lot of times the technical people come in and say, oh, well, we're here to solve all your problems. <laughs> it's all in the data, things like that. And it's, uh, it creates barriers. It puts people off. And I try to tell people, don't, don't approach it that way. Just You're another person there to help make things better. Look at it that way. Well, you're all part of the a team that's exactly. working towards an end goal. Yeah, but uh, you know, the, when I interview data scientists too, many of them are very impressed with talking about the complexity of the models they've built and how they've done this and they've done that and everything. And I, I don't tend to hire. I don't hire those people because you know, if you're if you're being interviewed by me or somebody on our team, you have the technical skills. I mean, there's a screen for that that we kind of establish just to get to the interview process. And if all you want to talk about is your your expertise and your intelligence, then yeah, I don't think you're going to work out here. Okay. Listen up, folks. (laughs) You've heard it from the senior vice president at Employers. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? And it may have been that you screwed up a big project or (laughs) that you really didn't like your supervisor. I know I've had... (laughs) Several instances where that was the case, but most importantly, how you made it through that period of time, Tom, and perhaps a lesson that you learned in the process. Yeah, there's two instances that come to mind. The first is one I alluded to earlier when I was trying to find a job in Northern California. I didn't really have much of a, a network up there. And I applied for this job at Allstate. And initially, they weren't terribly excited at me. They thought I was too practical because I was working for a wealthy individual, managing money and helping them do investments and things. And they wanted somebody who was a little more theoretical, at least. And that, that sort of initially put me off. Like, my goodness, I'm a Harvard MBA. You know, back then, I was very confident about what a Harvard MBA meant for me. <laughs> and I thought, I can't even get a job at Allstate doing research. That was a real come down for me. And it really took me aback a bit and made me really wonder, gee, I mean, forced me to question a lot of things about assumptions I had made about my life and my career path and all of that that I took for granted, which in the, in the long run was a really good experience. And I wound up getting the job there through somebody I'd met 
few years prior who worked in the investment department at Allstate in, in their home office in Chicago. I called him and said, and he, he remembered me. I didn't think he would. And long story short, he put in a good word for me. And next thing I know, I was interviewing again with them and basically said, you need more practical people out there. You don't need more eggheads. <laughs> you need a guy like Tom. And I got the job. So a couple lessons learned there were just keep persevering even when things aren't looking that rosy. And at the same time, it's the networking aspect of, you know, don't ever forget who you've met in the past. Because a lot of times, especially, you know, more senior people, they're anxious to help. They want to help younger people get along. I mean, you know, I called this gentleman. We had a great time one night. We spent out together and he was like, oh my God, yeah, how you doing? We haven't, we haven't talked in a few years. Let me help you out. So I think that's a great lesson for younger people is don't burn bridges, number one. And, you know, don't be afraid to call people that you've met once or twice in your life a few years ago and say, hey, do you remember me? Um, you know, the worst that they can say is, no, I'm sorry, I don't, or I can't really help you. But a lot of times they'll turn that around and say, oh yeah, I remember you. I'd like to help you. Absolutely. That is such great advice. And especially to look out for those mentors once you get into your new company. Because as Tom said, many, 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 many of us really want to help you. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) We want to share what we've learned. So final time for coffee question, Tom. If you could go back to Ohio State and do it all over again. But based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Well, in Ohio State, I was working a full-time job during the day with the pension fund. I became their equity trader and I was going to school full-time at night. I wouldn't change that because it really helped get me accepted to Harvard and springboarded me to going further. But at the same time, I wish I'd smelled the roses a little bit more in my college days. You know, I went to Ohio State football games and tried to do traditional college things. And I lived with a bunch of guys. We had fun and everything. But yeah, I, I sort of missed some of the college experiences that I think are typical from from big schools like that. So I might have done that a little differently. More on a professional standpoint, I think back to Harvard, where, again, I was young. I was probably one of the younger people in the class because they, they like to hire people with experience, not so much right out of college, but I did have experience. So that was, why I think, why they let me in. And I wish I had taken advantage of more of the, the professors and the resources there to really build more relationships you know, I was a bit intimidated, I think, when I first got there. It's like, oh, my goodness, here's the kid from Ohio State at the Harvard Business School. And it, it was a little intimidating, I think. I didn't make time to go meet some of the professors as much as I should have. And like we just were talking about, they're interested in helping students for the most part. Many of them are. And they welcome students that reach out to them and want to sit down and talk and learn and, and build a relationship. And those relationships can be very valuable going forward and, and very rewarding just from an intellectual perspective. So that's what I wish I had done there is really spent more time leveraging the resources that were there. It's one of the most you know, esteemed business schools in the world and a lot of amazing professors there that probably didn't take advantage enough of learning from them as much as I could, although I learned a lot, obviously, in a classroom. Oh, that is wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Tom, for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. If you're interested, our listeners, in learning more about how to break into this fascinating industry in the data and analytics realm, especially in the insurance industry, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Tom's Espresso Shots interview has already dropped. Thank you so much, Tom. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Andrea. So did I. 
Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Oh,